Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Extrospective Podcast with your host, Zach Villeneuve Snell. Today, my special guest is Joe Phillips, who is a 26-year-old zoologist and entrepreneur, recently fired by Lord Sugar on the famous BBC TV show, The Apprentice. In this episode, we discuss Joe's exotic upbringing, how dyslexia fuels his entrepreneurial spirit, and of course, his time on The Apprentice. Joe also shares his favourite animal, why he's so passionate about sustainability, and a little bit about his future ambitions in wildlife conservation. If this episode is the first one you've tuned in on, then please do hit the follow button wherever you're listening or watching, as I've got lots of exciting conversations lined up over the next few weeks. But of course, without further ado, welcome to the show, Joe Phillips. Actually, one thing very quickly before I introduce Joe, the podcast is sponsored by Runner. Please don't skip ahead because Runner is a fantastic running coaching service. I'm a keen runner and triathlete myself and actually knew the founder. I still do know the founder, Ben Parker. And it's something that I really believe in, which is why I invited them to come on and sponsor the podcast. So I'll spend about 20 seconds talking about what they do. So it's the first of its kind, number one rated, fully automated running coaching service. Whether you're training for your first marathon or a faster 10K time, or couch to 5k whatever it might be you'll be guided by an expert team including olympic marathon runner steph davis download runner spelt r-u-n-n-a today from the app store and with code zach z-a-k you'll get your first two weeks free to see what all the hype is about joe phillips jungle joe or james <laughs> bond of the business world welcome to the show how are you thank you so much zach yeah thanks for having me um and what a great introduction. <laughs> Before we, we crack on into things, I wanted to just obviously thank you for your time today. You must be a pretty busy man in the aftermath of The Apprentice with all the media coverage and stuff. So what's your reaction been like to all of the exposure you've gotten since the show? Do you know what? It's been fantastic. It really has been awesome, both for the business and myself as well. Um, before joining the show, you know, they've got all these welfare procedures put in place and we get told a lot that, you know, trolling is horrific and, you know, people watch The Apprentice and, you know, they just think, what fools on, you know, stumbling around on TV. So, you know, we were warned you're going to get a lot of abuse in the aftermath of The Apprentice, but genuinely people have been so nice. Um, and yeah, it's just been fantastic, like I said, both for me and the business. So yeah, I feel privileged to have been part of that process. That is that is fantastic. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that The Apprentice obviously is a big part of, of why you're on the show today. But as I said, when I reached out, you know, I think you truly did stand out to me as someone who's perhaps more sort of like graceful and empathetic in the process, which I think, you know, The Apprentice is all too often characterized as being like a doggy dog environment. Uh, yeah. And so we'll obviously talk about that uh, a little bit later on, because I'm sure people want to hear what it's all about. Yeah, but definitely. if I was to ask you to describe your personality, how would you do so? Who is Joe Phillips? That's a great question. Um, I guess it will vary depending on if I'm describing it or if someone else is describing it. So I think if you were to ask one of my friends and family to describe me in three words, they'd probably say, you know, Joe's ambitious and driven and enthusiastic. Um, but if you were to ask me, it would be the other side of the coin. And I would say, oh, you know, Joe's incredibly restless and um, hyperactive and he's terrified all the time. So it's just a matter of perspective, really. But I think both of those sides of the coin play into each other. Um, 
to create, like you say, Jungle Joe or the James Bond of the business world. <laughs> Would you say that sort of internal view of yourself uh, gets projected outwards? Like, do you think that comes across or do you think that it's almost like a internal sort of pressure you put on yourself to work hard that then comes across as like being successful on the outside? The latter. I think the latter. Yeah. I think, um, Zach, everyone has their internal battles. Like if I'm being completely honest with you and no matter how like bright and shiny it might seem on the outside or how fantastically it might seem someone is doing, everyone will be having their own struggles that they're facing with inside. Um, but like you said, it's, it's that internal reflection you have and how you use that, like those, you know, little embers to create a fire and use that ambition to drive you, uh, is how it's portrayed to the world. And I, I genuinely, I've got a big, um, I, I, I've got a big feeling that the law of attraction is, you know, a real thing where if you believe something heavily and you give out certain vibes into the environment, the environment will give it back to you. And, uh, yeah, that's what I try to do. That's why I try to be enthusiastic with everything I get stuck into. I always find it interesting that whole idea of like a self-fulfilling prophecy is that <laughs> if if you if you embody it, I know I don't like to use the word manifest because it, it seems a bit cuckoo, but I think it's true that you know yes. if you do really embody your beliefs and really believe something to be true and be optimistic, then it, it's going to be more likely to happen, and you're going to be more likely to to go in that direction. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah, and uh, that's your. I'm all right thinking you do like triathlons and like sort yep. of, yeah. I also love my sports as well. And it's a big part of sports psychology. Like you might know, you know, if you're taking a penalty or you're playing rugby and you, you're about to kick the, the post, you know, coaches will often say, you know, visualize the result before you do it. Visualize the result. You can see the ball flying over the post. You can see the reaction of the crowd. You can see the scoreboard tick over. And if you can visualize that so strongly, I genuinely believe it, you know, will have an impact on your performance when you actually go to take the kick. So yeah, I think that's a cool, cool thing. I won't say manifest, it does sound a bit kooky, but that sort of vibe. I, I mean, visualization is very powerful. And I think uh, many of the listeners of the podcast, whether they're friends of mine at uni or just mutual circles are indeed athletes. Some of them trying to make it as a pro, some of them are. And, and I've heard that that's that term being used a lot about, you know, seeing yourself in a certain race scenario or, or whatnot. Um, before we talk about visualization and how, how you kind of came to want to go on to The Apprentice, I want to ground this story, the story of Joe in your upbringing, because of course the, the childhood and shapes our character so much and our trajectory into adulthood and the decisions that we make. So how, what was your uh, what was your childhood like, Joe? My childhood was awesome. <laughs> I, I genuinely I feel very privileged to have the you know have the childhood that I did have. Um, I was lucky enough to have grown up in the developing world, so I spent my childhood hopping around these exotic countries. Um, my mom was originally from Zambia, um, and so I grew up in Zimbabwe. And my earliest memories of little Joe was, um, you know, wandering around the African bush barefoot. And I think that's what really ignited my excitement for nature, but at the same time for business, because I think just being, I mean, if you've ever been to these developing countries, they're fantastic. And there's just an explosion of entrepreneurialism all around you. Um, so I think just being surrounded by that growth and innovation 
really ignited my excitement for business and entrepreneurialism. How come you were traveling around all those those countries growing up? Oh, my dad's a spy. Is that yeah? No, that's not true. <laughs> I, I was like, I'm not. I was like, I'm not sure if, if you're like filling my leg here because I, I don't want to question. You know, <laughs> like, you're like, okay, um, makes sense why you're the James James Bond of the business. Yeah, world. no, I think, yeah, that would make sense actually. Yeah. Um, no, no, my dad's a, a venture capitalist actually, so right. he invests in emerging markets around the world, um, which kind of took. And like I say, my mom's from Zambia, so that's why we started off in in Zimbabwe. Are there any particular defining moments or lessons that you can look back to from your childhood, which you can sort of see how that's come through into who you are today? For example, like with your with your passion for the conservation, is it were there any particular moment where it like really really connected with the nature, or, or was it just a general sort of process? It was more of a gradual process, you know. When you're a kid, it's like nothing nothing major that hits you in the face, and you're like, "Whoa, I love animals." But um, we had a rule in Zim where we had to go on safari every other weekend. So we had this little land cruiser. We would pack up with a cooler box and, you know, some picnic stuff and some binoculars and we'd head out into the bush every other weekend. So just that exposure really um, to wildlife, which was, which, which is really what caught my attention. Do you think we almost lack that in, in these like sheltered built up like mm. Western, Western world? massively massively like <laughs> now i'm i'm very much you know shoulder deep into the corporate world um and i miss the bush i miss wildlife i, I really do think everyone needs that connection um to the natural world i think it just brings you back to like a primitive state of mind uh you know when you like look up to the stars and you get that feeling like whoa like i'm so small that's the feeling that you know when you, you you watch like a six ton bull elephant come around the corner that's the feeling you get and i i think everyone should be exposed to that more for sure i completely agree and it's it's a lot of the reason why i like to get out on my bike now is you know not just for the exercise it's not just for the training and the racing but it's just having that grounding in being in the outdoors and also embedding in nature as well and going off road and, and all this sort of stuff that i think you also have liked to dabble in with with fitness and stuff and mm -hmm. one of the questions i wanted to ask is where what role has fitness played in, in growing up in I was scrolling back on instagram you sort of see all these photos of you surfing or doing certain things and obviously you're quite a quite an athletic guy so what role has that played in, in growing up um massive really I, i've i've just i've always been into my sports and my fitness but i think it just it comes back to my um almost like just my attitude to life like i'm kind of probably a really annoying person to be around if i'm being honest with you zach um just because i have to permanently be doing something my my brain has to be occupied with something i can't just be cooking i have to be cooking and listening to a podcast or i can't just go for a walk i have to go for a run and then train for an event or something like that so yeah sports has always just been that fantastic release where i can put my physical energy into something um like you know what it's like if you've got a race coming up or a triathlon or something you've got a goal and i always need a goal i think if i don't have that i feel very lost and you know, you can, I can feel my my mental state slipping, and you know, I need something to reach for, and sport provides that for me.
don't mean for this to turn into a therapy session, but <laughs> what, <laughs> why, do you, why do you think that is? Because I, I think it's interesting that some people can operate without a goal and without moving towards something, but yeah. you, you sort of need that. You need to be doing something constantly. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I probably do know the answer. Yeah. But, but it would turn into more of a therapy session. Um, but yeah, just coming back to childhood, um, I'm dyslexic. And when I was a kid and I got like diagnosed with dyslexia, um, I don't know why, but it, it just really hit me hard, like really hard. And I remember thinking, that's it. I remember thinking like, like I've got this thing now where I can't, I can't achieve this. I can't do that. And I'll never get to where I want to be. Um, I don't know. I was like five at the time, really young, but I just had this such a strong thought that that I had this thing that was going to hold me back. And um, because of that, I think, you know, I really struggled at school and I, I struggled to keep my head above water. And I saw all my classmates going flying ahead of me. Um, and because of that, I think I had to work really hard just to keep up with them. And it was that sort of work ethic that started when I was at that sort of young age where, you know, I would work and work and work just to keep my head above water. And then as I grew up, that kind of carried on to the point where you know, I didn't just want to keep up with everyone. I wanted to keep burning, keep working to overtake them and to reach new heights. And, you know, I wanted to almost prove a point to myself that, um, yes, I've got dyslexia, but there's no way in hell that's going to hold me back from achieving what I want to achieve. I love that for you. And I, I love that message as well, that you're able to then carry forth now and, and share. And, and I read on an interview somewhere that was one of your sort of motivating factors as well for sort of a, applying for the apprentice and showing oh, yeah. that, that it can be done. I wanted yes. to ask off the back of that, where do you think it's actually served you and, and been a strength, um, not just in terms of like, you know, using it as fuel to then go one above, but do you think it's played a positive role also in, in how you're able to think about things? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard about a term called dyslexic thinking. No. It's actually a, like officially a, um, a new term that's been put in the Oxford Dictionary um, by Richard Branson, because someone of that power can influence, um, you know, such huge forces. And, and he's obviously dyslexic. So big passion of him, of his. Um, so, yeah, dyslexic thinking is basically like, when you're dyslexic, obviously you're you struggle with with things that people who aren't dyslexic might find quite easy, like reading or writing um, or maths, and those are the sort of things that I struggled with at school. But the things that I found quite easy was perhaps more of the you know the artistic side, the creative thinking, and dyslexic thinking is basically a terminology used to describe that and to say that you know people that have dyslexia think in a slightly different way. And because of that, they'll be coming up with ideas that are outside of the box. Um, there's a great expression that I read somewhere that said like, you know, if you employ someone or you have a student that is dyslexic, you can, you can expect small typos, but big ideas. And I think that's a fantastic little mantra. Absolutely. I think that's, yeah. that's really encouraging. And, you're able to almost use that as well in your entrepreneurial spirit, as you'd, as you've mentioned, and 
you go off to Exeter Uni. Oh, sorry, well, in terms of the story of you, you know, you obviously move over to the UK uh, yeah. and you go to go to university. And I actually went to an open day there, I think, in <clears throat> in Falmouth. It's super, oh, yeah. super remote, super different. I think they, they offer politics there as well as all of the sort of environmental and zoology yeah. degrees. Yeah, um, yeah. What was the university experience uh, like for you? Because I'd imagine it's, it's probably quite different from a lot of other students' experiences of uni, right? Being right in the right in Cornwall. So different. Zach, you should have gone. Yeah. Where are you at oh. uni again? Uh, I'm at Surrey Uni. Surrey. Oh, I actually live in Surrey now. That's not too far away. Oh, well, um, I have to link up for a bike ride when I'm back there. Yeah, for, for yeah, yeah, no, I'll be up for that. Yeah. You'd probably have like a super slick road bike and I've got a clunky old mountain <laughs> bike. Yeah, no. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, keen. Um, no, university was awesome. It really was so cool. I, I, um, I actually wanted to go to Exeter because that's where my dad went. Um, but the second I saw that campus in Falmouth, I just fell in love with it. And, you know, I had my heart set and I thought, right, I'm going here, whatever it takes, I'm going here. Um, just because I love the environment and, and being out in nature and where else in the UK can you go to a university where you have the beach on your doorstep? Literally my student house, you would walk out onto a beautiful beach and you could surf before lectures, you could skate to your lectures, and in the evening you could have a beach barbecue with your mates. Like, it was just, honestly, it was the life. And yeah, very lucky to have gone to that uni. And when you were at uni, you had your first foray into business, would you say? Or were you, were you doing business no. stuff before? No, 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 it wasn't my first tour. I would say I'm a, a serial entrepreneur. Wow. <laughs> Not all of them successful, but, um, but no, like, business i would say i've always had like an entrepreneurial attitude since i was young uh, i think the first the first business i set up was must be when i was about 10 uh, i say business you know when you're 10 it's like oh i'll flog this or sell some lemonade on the street but um i was about 10 i was living in malaysia at the time and it was this was like the first inkling into my 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 mindset being split into businessman and um, nature enthusiast because I was living in Malaysia and on the one side I saw this fantastic innovation and entrepreneurialism in society on the other hand I was seeing the destruction and devastation and deforestation of the natural environment to fuel that. Um, that growth and so that hit me hard and I was like right I'm gonna do something about this so I actually do you remember those I don't know if, if you remember when you could iron on logos and stuff and prints onto t-shirts oh yeah yeah yeah. when you could do that um so I did that I I bought with my pocket of money like a few white t-shirts and ironed on a logo that said um what did it say? Save, save the earth. It's the only planet with chocolate. And <laughs> yeah. And then I sold them and then used the minuscule money I got from that to buy seeds. And then I went and planted seeds. And that was my like 10 year old's brain thinking, you know what, I'm going to save the rainforest by planting like 10 trees. <laughs> um, so no, yeah, that was probably my first. And then I set up another slightly better business called Bedouin Bags in Egypt. And then California was my university business after that. And California being a brand that's sort of embedded in sustainability with the 
sort of surf bomb coming off as like an extension mm. that was the kind of whole apprentice thing or, or was there more to Falifornia than, than just that? No, that, you've pretty much got it. Yeah. So Falifornia was a name, nothing more than a name. When I started university in Falmouth, I heard um, the name being thrown around and I asked some of the older kids, what the hell does that mean? Or what was Falifornia? And they said, us, oh, it's, it's the nickname we give to this campus because it's like the California lifestyle in Falmouth, hence Falifornia. <laughs> um, and I remember thinking in my first year, do you know what? There's a bit of value in that, I think. So I researched it and I discovered nobody owns the name. Nobody owned it. People used it everywhere, but nobody owned it. So uh, I logged on to gov.com. I collected all my beer money I had at the time and I invested it and bought the trademark. So I officially owned the name. And once I had that, I started on my journey to turn that name and idea into a, an idea of a unique lifestyle into a business and a brand that, you know, students can wear and feel proud of. Um, yeah. And, and that's where it started really. Fantastic. And as we mentioned, that was the kind of whole proposal going on to the apprentice with that sort of business idea in mind and coming on to the apprentice then I'm sure people have been eagerly anticipating uh, these questions. So yeah. the obvious question is, why did you apply? I know I asked, I know you mentioned the whole dyslexia thing earlier, but was there a broader and a different reason other than that? Not massively, actually. You know, um, I applied off a whim. I really just applied off a whim. So I've watched the show for years with my family and love it. Um, and it was just last season when it finished and the credits rolled, my dad just said, oh, Joe, you should apply for that. Because at the time I had, I had been running Surf Bomb for a year or so, uh, and it was doing fairly well, ticking along, but still a very micro business. Um, and I, I remember thinking, ah, that's true now, I'll, I'll never get onto that. And it was actually the next day I got on a plane and I flew to South Africa because I was working um, as a guide at the time. Uh, and by the time I landed, I had convinced myself to apply. So it was literally, literally the last day you could submit applications when I landed. So I got off the plane, had a horrific journey to get into my game reserve. And as I pulled up in the speedboat, because we had to access the reserve through a river, as I pulled up in a speedboat, I asked my colleague to film me quickly because you have to submit like a, a application video. Um, and that's where the, <laughs> that's where the James Bond of the business world comes from. Cause I just happened to be on a speedboat jumping off it. And it was the first thing that came to my mind. Um, so yeah, chucked in my application and I guess the rest is history. You mentioned somewhere that there was over 60,000 applicants and it's probably quite selective. So in your mind, why do you think uh, why do you think you were chosen to to be part of the final? Was it sixteen? Yeah, uh, eighteen this year. Eighteen. Uh, but you're right; they had over sixty thousand applicants um, as well. So for nine positions as a guy, um, why did they choose me? Zach, you tell me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think, firstly, it's a rigorous application process. It has to be if you have that volume of people applying. And I, I genuinely, I think they, they take two things into account. They first, they look if you'd be good on TV, because I think f 
firstly, it's an entertainment show. Um, but secondly, they rip apart your business to see if it's an eligible and legitimate business Lord Sugar would want to invest in. Um, so they, they definitely, you, you have to be a proper legitimate business person to get on the show. Um, and there's a whole series of application processes to go through. But as you kind of progress up the ranks in the interviews and the assessment days, you kind of, you end up talking to Lord Sugar's business advisor and he rips you apart about your business and grills you on all the numbers. You have to provide sort of bank statements and financial forecasts and you have to write a 50 page business plan for Lord Sugar. Um, so it's a rigorous process, but um, but yeah, well worth it, I think. <laughs> Sounds, I, was, I suppose out of the 60,000 you do, you're always going to have a certain percentage that are trying to sort of like blag their way on with these like fraudy cool. things. So it's good, good that cool. it's obviously so rigorous. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, you made it through fantastic probably um probably considering it was on a whim maybe surprised so yeah. you get onto the show you sort of move into the house and one of the questions that I, i've had because you know i've also watched the apprentice for many years is how does it actually work like so do you, you go into the house and there's all these tasks and from the outside looking in it looks like they're just sort of like back to back and you know ring on the phone at 5 a.m and the, the car comes yeah. to get you so what's that whole like when you're like sort of like chucked into that in the deep end so i'll be straight with you i can't disclose too much information about the process itself but i can tell you that it it it's it's like nothing you could fathom even if i could tell you i probably couldn't even articulate it because it's it's so surreal um, when you you're at the epicenter of this whirlwind, um, and it is a whirlwind when you're in there. It's like this permanently. Um, but the second you step through those boardroom doors, you're taken off the face of this planet. So they take your watch, your phone, tell you what to wear. Uh, you're allowed one twenty minute phone call with your your family once a week. Um, and yeah, the process itself is, um, it's, it's kind of a bit brutal, if I can say that, like you're working incredibly long hours sort of like 16 hour days, uh, six days a week, and you're just burning off <laughs> adrenaline and they feed you caffeine and you keep going. Um, but yeah, it's pretty much back to back. You do. The, depending on the length of the task you'll do like maybe like a two three day task go straight into a two-day task and then you'll have one day off and then you do it again blah, 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 like that you said at the beginning that you've watched the show yourself for a few years what's the most surprising thing going into it that you caught sort of didn't really anticipate when you were watching it on tv <sighs> I probably watch it like everyone else watches it in the nation. So I watched it thinking, oh, morons. I watch it thinking, what more? Like, how can you create a logo that looks like, you know, a turd or something like that? <laughs> yeah. Um, is the first thing I thought. And the second thing I thought was everyone on the process is kind of like a bit kind of dicks like they you know they're very arrogant they're kind of they're all that they argue blah 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 
So I had all these expectations going on to the show. But being part of the process, it's nothing like that. Firstly, everyone's lovely. Everyone are just genuine people with fantastic businesses. Um, and secondly, I saw immediately why <laughs> why the previous candidates had come up with a turd shaped logo. Obviously, it's it's not like they didn't go in there with the intention of creating that logo, but just the way the environment is set up as part of the process, um, you're kind of guided um, through certain you know certain ways which leads you to certain results, um, which, yeah, that, that was a, probably the biggest shock for me. It was like, oh, okay, right, there are certain restrictions here, um, which was the, the main surprise. But other than that, it was like a fantastic, fantastic experience. I suppose a lot of that is when, when for example, you get given time to do something, there's going to be like more time constraints or, you know, you're going to want to do something and they're like, no, like that. there is literally a hard hard fast stop you can't ask the designer to do this this that, and the other and i suppose yeah. there is all that pressure of just having to move from one thing to the next so i think it's interesting to hear that you know it's very easy to be that sort of backseat driver but when you're actually yeah. when you're actually driving you realize how, how difficult <laughs> yeah. it is um, it, that's it it's it's so easy to be critical of it but you think these guys are like coming up with an idea a brand a logo manufacturing it overnight and then pitching it to industry experts the next day it's like to do that in 72 hours is a really impressive. Bit harsh as well when the industry experts just rip into you. It's like, well, obviously I had no, no idea what I'm oh, talking so, about, right? You know what? It's so bad because we had like one of the tasks I did was selling bower buns to trunkies, like, you know, and you had to do a pitch. And they've obviously got no idea. You know, we don't have access to the internet. We don't even have mobile phones. So we can't do any research. We can't even write stuff down. And... I remember this is a bit of background, uh, uh, like a bit of behind the scenes info that didn't make it on screen. But um, the first half of that pitch to Trunkies, he was just grilling us on his business. He said, he was like, right, you know, how many countries do we operate in? How many Trunkies did we produce last year? What are all the different uh, designs we have? And we were literally like, we don't like. How, how can we know that? Like we, uh, <laughs> we can't Google things. <laughs> um, but yeah, stuff like stuff like that. The industry experts are uh, experts in that field and we're definitely not most of the time. So yeah, that's, that can be tough sometimes. You, you pick up on the, the Baobun task, but uh, what was your sort of favorite task out of all of the episodes that you featured on? Oh, they were so good. Um, ironically, I think it was my last one, which was Dubai. Um, I felt so lucky to start off my my apprentice um, series with Antigua and then finish it with Dubai. I thought that was the perfect beginning and end. But yeah, even though it was the one I got fired on, Dubai was, I had so much fun out there. And coming on to your firing, I think it was an absolute injustice. And <laughs> judging, by the, <laughs> judging by the comments well. on Instagram, it seems, seems the same thing. But like yeah. from your perspective i know it's obviously you, you can't just like throw it throw it under the bus but when you look at uh the the justifications of why some people are fired and obviously you've you're going there as a, a with your business proposal and you're fired for not being a good cook like it's, it just seems like there's a bit of asymmetry there so like how what was your experience of that whole sort of that sort of ordeal 
I, like I kind of agree and disagree. Like I agree because obviously I'm an industry expert in the personal care market and I sell a lip balm, you know, to surfers. And then I got fired for undercooking some kebabs and, uh, and, and providing two drinks of water in the desert. Um, so when you look at it like that, it's like, oh, it doesn't make any sense. But at the same time, I think The Apprentice is, the whole process is set up. It's like, it's a job application process at the end of the day. And it's set up to put you in these extreme environments that you, you're not really exposed to on a day-to-day life and just see how you cope. And they'll put obstacles in your way and you'll have things to negotiate around. And it's not really, I don't think it's really the result at the end of the day. It's how you cope with it. So it's in a way like they'll chuck everything at you to make sure it fails. And then they see how you cope at that lowest point. I think that's what makes it such a cool application process. So, you know, you're having to make decisions under extremely high pressure. And I think that's where I went wrong in in Dubai. So when you think of it like that, it's kind of like, yeah, fair enough. I mentioned at the start that you you came across to me, at least from from the TV, as that kind of kind and empathetic. Mm And one of the things that, you know, did happen in the boardroom when you were getting fired is the whole idea of not being served enough water for the, for the clients yeah. and Simbra was obviously the person to sort of deliver that message but you interjected <laughs> and, and took responsibility so do you think you're almost too nice for the process yeah I, I think I shot myself in the foot a bit uh actually on that task because yeah it was the same with Danny as well you know she was the one that said no we only need two glasses of water um and then Simba was the one that told them they only had two glasses of water. So, and in both cases, I think in, in the boardroom, Lord Sugar said, Danny, you, you know, why did you restrict the drinks? And I stepped in and said, uh, actually, I, I'll take responsibility for that. And then he said the same to Simba. Simba, why would you tell them? And I said, no, 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 me again. Um, so, yeah, I definitely shot myself in the foot. I think I, actually, I was about to say if I could go back, I would not do that. But um I think I would like, do you know what, if I was in the same situation, I would probably do it because it's in my nature and I genuinely believe it's far better to be transparent and honest than try to like snake your way around stuff. Cause I think at the end of the day, that's always going to come back to bite you. As a personality trait, I don't know if you're familiar, known as agreeableness. And I think everyone sits somewhere on the spectrum and you know, that sort of hard, hard hatted, business approach being like super disagreeable and super I don't know harsh with how you come across yeah. is obviously good in some environments but I think the sort of more responsibility taken compassionate sort of side that comes almost with the with the conservationist kind of style that you have and maybe the upbringing being okay. grounded in, in all these environments makes you more agreeable but to the benefit of how you're able to apply that if that makes sense like it's not yeah. always a black and white of being negative and being positive it's how you use it and I think you know, perhaps in the process, it was a detriment here, but you're able to also use that part of your personality for the good in the work that you sort of go on to do now. And yeah, that's fantastic. Never heard that, but yeah, brilliant insight. When you were finishing the process and you kind of come back home, what was the reaction with all of your family and friends and people who were maybe at university of you when you were setting up the business in, in the start? Uh, it's been brilliant. It really has been brilliant. I mean, I've got a very, very close family. Um, 
my close family and my extended family with all my cousins and everything like that. Um, so yeah, they're just incredibly supportive, obviously very proud. I think when getting on the process, the one I felt I had such imposter syndrome, if I'm honest with you, um, I thought, you know, all these people, fantastic business, business people, I'm a zoologist. Um, so in my mind, I thought if I can just get past the first task, I just don't get fired on the first task. Um, then I'll be happy. But yeah, I did, I did, I did survive a lot longer than that. So my whole family was very proud and it was just a great experience to share with them. So what does life look like post apprentice? What, what are you, what are you currently up to? What does your day to day look like? My day to day life is incredibly busy, <laughs> unsurprisingly at the moment, but like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, I prefer a busy life to a boring one. So I like to permanently doing things. So a lot of, um, a lot of stuff going on at the moment. I actually, I, I currently work for a, a large multinational FMCG corporation. Um, so I do that a majority of my time. And for, sorry, for the listeners that don't know, what's a FMCG? Oh, sorry. Uh, fast moving consumer goods, buying and selling, mainly selling fast moving consumer goods to retailers. So it's actually pretty much what I did with Surf Farm when I first set it up. It's like, you know, you, you sell a product at wholesale price to a retailer and the retailer sells it to the consumer. Um, so that's kind of my corporate side. Obviously I run Surf Farm as well, um, which is a juggle in itself. But then uh, and aside from that as well, um, you know, I've got the, the nature side to me and off the back of The Apprentice, some fantastic people getting in touch, um, wanting actually to make podcasts and stuff. So maybe I'll, you know, ask for your advice um, on how to do a good podcast because this one's fantastic. Um, but yeah, j various stuff like that. And I'm actually flying back to South Africa in a couple of weeks. Um, so lots of stuff going on, but, uh, like I said, it's better to be busy than to be bored. So what's sort of keeping you interested and in inspiring you to keep pursuing that sort of zoology and, and conservation lifestyle and being <clears throat> grounded in nature? Like what is it about it and that you hope to go on to do and, and why? Um, you know, I've had, I've always wanted to be a, a nature, like a wildlife documentary presenter. Um, David Atom has been like my hero for ages. Um, and he's on the way out, let's be honest. So someone else needs to take over. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, God bless him. But uh, no, I've always wanted to be a documentary presenter. And after being on The Apprentice and on TV, you know, I, I love the film industry as well. So um, it's certainly a goal I'll set myself to, to sign up for some sort of project like that. Um, and other than that, what was your question? What brings me back to nature basically yeah yeah so just, just just my childhood like that that's where i grew up and that's where i feel at home and we've got a family home in south africa so if i'm away from it for too long i feel like i need to get back there and just have like a detox and just be surrounded by impala or giraffe or something uh then i really feel at, at rest what's your favorite animal Oh, yes. Uh, oh, God, this is such a hard one. Um, I love all of them. I, probably like the classic one I would always say is an elephant. Um, just because I can watch them for hours without getting bored. They're just such magnificent beasts and highly intelligent. Um, 
and yeah, but uh, I did my um, thesis on the banded mongoose. I love them as well, incredibly interesting animals. And aside from um, mammals, I think invertebrates are sick. Like genuinely, they're so cool. Like termites, ants, eusocial insects. You know, we can learn a lot from them. Um, so, my can my answer be all animals? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'll um, do that one. If people were listening to this and uh, like, obviously they pr- probably enjoyed you on The Apprentice or, or the followers of the podcast and they want to become more educated in terms of environmental sustainability or conservation, obviously you being somewhat of an expert in that whole field, like what would you, what would you guide them towards and say that they should try and maybe incorporate into their lifestyle day to day? The first most basic thing I would do is go for a walk. Genuinely, it's what it's my favorite thing to do on this planet is go for a walk. And I know not everyone has access to fly to, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and go on safari. If you can do that, I would I would 100% recommend it. But if you can't, just go for a walk. Like this time of year, sp- coming towards spring, you can hear the birds chittering away, you know, some squirrels. And even if there aren't any animals, like you were saying with your bike riding, just getting out and a bit of endorphins, you always, always, always come back feeling better. If you're having a miserable day, go for a half hour walk and you'll come back feeling refreshed. So that would be my one bit of advice. Sort of your your takeaway and maybe uh, if you will live by the sea to take up surfing oh Uh, yeah and if you can do that yeah do that as well (laughs) one of the things that you know obviously having a business in surf balm uh my sister was asking about it because she was looking at the the product on the website and kind of didn't really understand like what what the difference so what like in terms of surfers why should they use your product and what makes it different from from this is like i'm almost like interviewing now (laughs) oh yeah that's fine don't worry so the, the reason I set up Surf Balm was because I loved surfing in Cornwall, but I hated seeing the high tide mark littered with plastic. You can picture it, like beautiful, pristine Cornish beaches and the high tide mark has plastic everywhere. And a lot of that is like plastic chapsticks. because You know, like the little tubes you use. For yep. And like coupled with that, the personal care market is like exponentially growing. It's huge, both for females and males. Almost everyone you know carries around a little lip balm. So it actually has quite a detrimental impact on the ocean, both because it's most of the time got a plastic casing. And secondly, it's actually made from petroleum jelly, which is created from fractional distillation of crude oil. The same stuff you put in your car. Like this is just like, evil stuff (laughs) um so it's terrible for the ocean and so i just looked at that and thought well i've got a business at the moment where we sell a range of merchandise lip balm will be the next thing and the kind of mantra of it was let's save the ocean one lip balm at a time and so i set up surf balm to try to kind of capture that niche um and it did better than my, my university business in about three months. So I thought, yeah, let me focus on this one. Because <laughs> there's obviously a niche there. You know, surfers by nature will love the ocean. And yet there isn't really 
a product out there that is truly sustainable, 100% natural, and doesn't come in a cardboard packet that will get wet if you're a surfer. So um, yeah, there was a kind of a gap in the market there that I took hold of. And that's sort of to your nature as well, being entrepreneurial minded. And I think that's what I find so fascinating. A lot of the guests on this podcast, naturally by what I'm interested in, do have that entrepreneurial spirit. And it's really interesting to see how someone like myself potentially doesn't see the gap. And I'm like, oh, it's just, these are just the products available. This is the market. Oh, you do. Like you've set up a fantastic podcast. You do. So I suppose on the, in the digital world, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think it's it's interesting to understand that sort of gap you've been able to identify. Hopefully then with the product, it can help surfers and, and people in general, right? To sort of be more uh, ethical and sustainably um, conscious. Yeah. Um, and you've mentioned how you're trying to balance that alongside your other endeavors now with going out uh, into the bush and doing some more filming and conservation work alongside, of course, your your other work. No day um, job. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love it. It's exactly what uh, what people should be doing, trying to, you know, dabble their toes and everything and see what works for them and, and, and what they're passionate about. You've mentioned that stuff, but I saw somewhere that someone said the, the next show you should go on is Love I, Island. I knew it was <laughs> I knew, Yeah, you knew it was coming. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, um, just fed up of people asking like it's just a hard no it's like <laughs> stop asking no, no. You know what? I've, I've always got an attitude where i'll give something a go even if it's not my forte i'll try it but i don't think love island is is massively my um my thing really um like i was saying before i get really restless like i've always got to be doing something so the apprentice worked because you are constantly burning a new challenge love island um i think i would get really bored in the villa and I'm not a big gossiper and I think I would, I would just get fed up of, of going to people saying, so, um, so what do you think of this person's, uh, like new haircut? I was like, do you know what I mean? I would be wanting to do the next challenge or worrying about how my business is performing outside of the villa. So, um, I'll, I would say never say never, but it's not at the top of my priority list. And again, I suppose you probably too nice you know you gotta be a bit bit harsh to be on that process and you know yeah i, I mean I, I have not that i know i've never i've never watched love island like i'm not gonna claim to, to have seen it but um yeah so if people have uh have enjoyed listening to this and you know they, they love watching the on the apprentice and they've got got through to this stage of the podcast where where can they support you and what can they do to support what you're doing oh um if they want to they can they can feel free to contact me directly. Probably Instagram's the best, um, the best platform for that. So my Instagram's uh, joe.phillips7. Um, so yeah, pop me a message if you have a question. And if you want to have a look at the business, the website is probably the best platform, which is, uh, well, the business is called Surf Balm, and the website is just surfbalm.shop. So yeah, pop on there and have a browse. Any passing advice for any budding apprentice candidates? You mean if people are thinking about uh, yep. applying? Yeah. I, I would just say, just go for it. Like, what have you got to lose? I was literally, you know, I didn't have a multi-million pound business at the time. I was working in South Africa as a safari guide. No way in hell did I think I would be the one person selected out of 60,000. But I chucked in an application video. So, yeah, one bit of advice would probably be 
even if you think, you know, there's no way you'll get on, chuck in an application because that's what I did and you never know what will happen. And I suppose you can apply that sort of mantra to any sort of endeavor that anyone's trying to embark on. It's just, just give it a go. I mean, you've demonstrated that as well with your spirit at university, you know, just setting up the business, trademarking the, the name and just, just seeing what happens. And, you know, yeah. you've ended up on The Apprentice. You've got all these opportunities now just by seeing what happens and, and, and that's going it. for yeah, it's it. Right? Like going, looping back to where we first started, which is you chuck out this energy into the world and it will give it back to you. So, you know, I just, I think really you've only got one life that that's it you've got one life so i think just go for it like you say anything that comes your way give it a go i think that's a, a great message to end on hopefully people can take that away and write it down somewhere and an action on it and uh <laughs> yeah thank you thank you very much for your time thanks for recording and thanks everyone for listening awesome thank you so much for having me zach